Chills, a podcast where we talk about the paranormal, true crime, conspiracies, and anything creepy. I'm your host, Nina Cardona. And I'm Preston Porras. Today we will be discussing cursed movies. So if you haven't seen these following movies, just a fair warning, spoiler alert. There are also movies from the 80s and the 70s, and that's older than me. So if you haven't seen these, what are you doing? I haven't seen them either. The movies we will be talking about are the following. The Exorcist, Poltergeist, and Twilight Zone the movie. Before we start, I would like to apologize for the short break that we took. We have been so busy with work and we are actually trying to start a YouTube channel, which originally should have came out at the end of June, but it looks like it will be postponed for at least another month. We will definitely let y'all know when it comes out. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Chills. The movie The Exorcist is a classic. It was the highest grossing R-rated horror film until 2017. What beat it? Deadpool? A horror. Horror movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know it. What? You told it to me. Yep. It. Yep. Okay. It had such a big impact on pop culture and there are several publications claiming it to be one of the greatest horror films. So why is a horror film that came out almost 50 years ago still being talked about today? Well, let's get into it. This movie is about a young girl by the name of Reagan who gets possessed by a demon. This is when they seek help from a Catholic priest, but the real horror is off screen. During the course of filming, there were several injuries that took place. One of them being long-term back injuries that affected Linda Blair, who played Reagan, and Ellen Burstyn, who played Reagan's mother. There was a scene where Ellen was pulled back by a wire, but the force was so hard it broke her coccyx. The coccyx is the bone at the end of your spine, so the screams she let out during the scenes were real, which they kept in the movie. Can you imagine breaking your bone on camera and they're like, oh, we'll keep that in the movie, it's good. Lord of the Rings. Oh, really? Yeah, that's the scene where Aragorn kicks the helmet and he breaks his toe. And so that scream he lets out is his actual scream from breaking his foot. Oh my. So, it's common, I guess. For Blair, there are many scenes where she had to be strapped to a harness. Because in the scene, she had to be violently jerking and moving. This, of course, is the scene where she's possessed. While filming these scenes, the harness was repeatedly hitting her spine. The conditions on set are also very questionable. For example, in the scene where she is bedridden, she is only wearing a nightgown. The director of the movie kept the temperature below zero, and this was so that during the scene, you would be able to see their breath and kind of give it a nightmare effect. I don't know, they just thought it'd be creepier. Even though the crew was able to wear appropriate gear for this cold atmosphere. So they were able to wear like jackets and scarves and gloves and all that stuff, but she was in a nightgown. Another example of what it was like on set for Blair was the hours she had to spend in the makeup chair. The makeup they would apply on her to transform her face from a little girl to a demonic entity would take anywhere from two to five hours. 
not to mention the glue they used for prosthetics left chemical burns on her skin. There was so much chaos and weird occurrences during the production, the most notable being an electrical fire that burned down the set. This occurred due to a pigeon flying into a light box setting the set ablaze. This set them back six weeks while the set was being rebuilt. Along with chaos, there was also a numerous amount of deaths occurring during the film production. The actress who played the priest's mother died from influenza, and the strange part is that her character actually died in the movie as well. But the deaths don't stop here. Linda Blair's grandfather died. The assistant cameraman's wife had a baby who passed away. The crew member who was in charge of refrigerating the set also passed away. And not to mention the janitor who took care of the building was shot and killed. All during production? Mm-hmm. In total, there were around nine deaths during this production. I wonder what the record is for mo most deaths during a production. I bet this is it. Some may say this movie is cursed. These events got so bad that the director, William Friedkin, hired two priests, Father Thomas Birmingham and Father John Nicola, to be the technical advisors for the film. Friedkin asked Father Birmingham to exercise the set. Father Birmingham was unable to exercise the set, I'm not sure why, but they were able to administer a blessing. Everyone who worked on set, and I mean everyone, attended the ceremony. And after this, everything went back to normal. No weird occurrences or chaos was reported after the blessing. But the strange thing is that there was a fire that occurred where the priests lived. <laughs> Why did you gasp? <laughs> that was so late. <laughs> While nothing occurred on set after the blessing, there were weird occurrences happening on their post-production film. For instance, there were strange images that appeared on film. Friedkin explained there was an instance where there was a double exposure on one of the reels on Reagan's face that no one can explain. And for those of you who don't know what double exposure is, I'll let Preston explain. It's an old trick in photography where you take two separate images and lay them over each other t to combine one image. So taking two photographs to make one single image. Thank you. You're welcome. The movie The Exorcist came out before there were disclaimers before a movie started. Warnings like violence, foul language, or strobe light effects that can cause seizures. There were many people who got sick during this movie and even fainted and had to be taken out on stretchers. Also, I'm not sure if this is true, but it is said that there were barf bags that were handed out during some of the showings. People were vomiting, hallucinating, and even fainting. A woman even sued Warner Bros. for passing out while watching the movie and hitting her jaw as she fell, which resulted in a broken jaw. And this claim was settled in court for an undisclosed amount, so I don't know how much she got. I know you are going to ask, so... <laughs> no. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes, you would have. During this film, there's also a scene where they use subliminal imagery that would subconsciously impact the viewers. They showed the face of the demon that possessed Reagan, but this was shown for less than a second. It is the kind of scene where you blink, you will miss it. After filming, Linda Blair, the little girl who played Reagan, had bodyguards following her around everywhere because she had received multiple death threats. 
She even had police officers at her house 24-7 protecting her home. The reason she was receiving death threats was because people believed the film glorified Satan. So sure, go after the little girl. Yeah, she didn't write the script. <laughs> Next, we have Paul Bateson, one of the actors in the movie who was tried and convicted of murdering Addison Verrill, a film journalist. The scariest part is that he actually might be a serial killer. While in jail, he bragged about killing several men. But there is no evidence to link him to their murders, so he was only tried for the murder of Addison Verrill. Paul Bateson was charged with second-degree murder. He served a little over 24 years of his sentence. He became eligible for parole in 1997 and was released in August 2003. As for where he is now, no one really knows. He has been off the radar. People aren't really sure if he's even alive at this point. The most chilling fact would have to be that the movie The Exorcist is based on a true story. It's based on a 14-year-old by the name of Roland Doe who was possessed and had a Roman Catholic priest perform exorcisms for over a year. This is fake. Roland Doe? He's stacking money. What? Roland Doe. Oh, oh my gosh. I'm done. There is definitely some controversy over this because psychiatrists believe that the boy was mentally ill. During this, the devil's face appeared on Roland Doe's leg while the voice of St. Michael came out of his mouth, demanding the devil to leave the boy's body. We will definitely do an episode covering this story, because there is a lot to this. I had no idea that was even a thing, but that sounds really cool. <laughs> well, now it does. It sounds interesting. This movie sparked an interest in exorcisms. People started showing up to churches claiming they are in need of help because they are possessed. Whether they were doing this for the attention or because they were mentally ill, there was still a rise of people claiming to be possessed. After the movie was released, there were many rumors surrounding the film. One rumor in particular was that the director Friedkin used actual demonic recordings in the soundtrack. He dismissed these rumors by saying he did have a cassette recording of an actual exorcism that was performed in Rome, but he did not use the recordings in the film. He used it as a reference so that he could replicate or have similar voices in the film. Um, and I have a confession to make. Yes? I've never seen this movie. Oh, me either. <laughs> I've never seen it. I've always been really scared of this movie growing up, and I don't know, I've just never seen it. But I feel like I should, because I literally just covered it, and I haven't seen it. Maybe I will. Maybe when this comes out, I would have seen it. Livestream movie night. That'd be cool. Chills watches The Exorcist. Oh. The first movie I'll talk about is Twilight Zone, the movie. Have you seen Twilight seen Zone? It. Okay, that answers that. No, I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen a couple of episodes. This film... Of the show, not the movie. Gotcha. This film, that adaptation of the popular television series, let four different directors each adapt a classic episode. Steven Spielberg, who is famous for directing Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Jurassic Park, directed Kick the Can. It's a Good Life was directed by Joe Dante, famous for Gremlins and Inner Space. 
Nightmare at 20,000 Feet was directed by George Miller, known for The Road Warrior, Mad Max Fury Road. But the one with the curse was called Time Out, and it was directed by John Landis. He directed Trading Places and Animal House. There's a certain amount of morbidity around the episode because actor Vic Morrow and two young actors, Renee Chen and Micah Dinley, were killed in an onset accident during a segment where a helicopter that was part of a sequence recreating the Vietnam War crash landed on them. It's unfortunate because the child actor shouldn't have even been there in the first place. Yes, they were part of the script, but Landis had violated California child labor laws by hiring the young actors without having required permits. In the scene, Vic Morrow's character was rescuing two Vietnamese kids from an American air raid. Some people think it was just an excuse for Landis to use pyrotechnics. Was there any repercussions for that? Uh, I'll get to that. Okay. None of the other directors experienced any bizarre or unexplained incidents, and all continued to have successful careers. But the tragedy hung a dark shadow over Landis, and lends the movie a creepy, all-too-real feel. Piloting the helicopter was Vietnam War veteran Dorsey Wingo. Wingo hadn't really done any flying for Hollywood, so he was nervous about the scene. Even the rehearsal explosions made him uneasy. But Landis made some of the crew nervous with how angry and focused on setting off the explosion he was. So Wingo knew he had to go through with the stunt. Everything was set, the actors were ready, and Wingo was up in the sky when Landis started filming. The scene showed Vic Morrow's character carrying the two kids in his arms. They were supposed to cross through knee-high water in order to escape an air raid behind them. Vic Morrow was making his way through the water, but it seemed like he had some trouble holding on to the kids. He eventually dropped six-year-old Renee, who was able to get up and attempt to make it back to the actor. As the explosions behind them were set off, the flames engulfed Dorsey Wingo in the helicopter, and this is when things turned very bad. The pilot lost control in the flames and came down crashing at an angle. The right skid landed on Renee and crushed her instantly. The helicopter tipped over and the blades sliced through both Vic Morrow and seven-year-old Micah. Both were instantly decapitated. After the helicopter came to a stop, the entire crew was silent. It wasn't until Renee's mother ran over to find her daughter's dead body in the water that she let out a shriek. The parents of both child actors were on set that day and had just watched their kids die. It's also weird that if the scene had got as planned and the actors made it across the water, Marl's next line was going to be, I'll keep you safe kids, I promise. Nothing will hurt you, I swear to God. Warner Brothers Studio, John Landis, Dorsey Wingo, and three others were charged with involuntary manslaughter. They stated that yes, they broke child labor laws, when hiring the young actors, but also said that the accent was unavoidable. Unfortunately, after three years of trials, Landis and his co-defendants were acquitted of serious charges and went on to continue making movies. Boo. Hollywood had been changed forever though. The accident set in motion numerous changes behind the scenes. John Sylvia, vice president at Warner Bros created a committee that oversaw changes on how safety was handled on all future Hollywood productions. The new set of rules were called the safety bulletins. Even insurance agencies became common on Hollywood sets. 
Since sets were widely considered dangerous and unmonitored, insurance companies usually didn't feel like entering that area because the risk of payouts was too high. The new safety bulletins eased some of the concerns insurance companies had before. Now, an agent was always on set and required answers to every little aspect of something that could go wrong. They would cover things like looking at the resumes of everyone involved with the film, the distances between explosives, how many explosives there are, the number of fire extinguishers on set, the amount of crew that will be on set, everything related to safety. They also cannot be fired by a director or producer. This gives crew members a way to voice their concerns without having to fear that they'll be fired or let go. I like that. Hopefully all the changes in safety stemming from the deaths of Vic Morrow, Micah Dinley, and Renee Chen will continue to prevent further tragic accidents on film. Next, I'll discuss probably the most famous cursed movie of all time, Nacho Libre. What? Just kidding. Nah, I'm talking about Poltergeist. That's me snapping because I love that movie. Poltergeist? Yeah. You know it? Yeah. I, I've only seen it once and I've, that was with you. I've seen it like 10 times. This 1982 film was directed by Toby Hooper and produced by Steven Spielberg. It's considered today to be a masterpiece of American horror cinema. There's a number of weird things surrounding this movie. From things happening on set to real human skeletons being used on camera. But most of the curse gets its backstory surrounding the unexpected deaths of two stars featured in the film. Question. <gasps> oh! <laughs> Loki has a question too. Do you cover why they used real skeletons? Yes. Though the total number of deaths after this film is four. Heather O'Rourke, a six-year-old girl, played one of the biggest main characters in the film. Big as in she had an important part in a lot of screen time, not big as in her size. She was six. She played the young daughter, Carol Ann Freeling, the girl who sits at the TV, looks back, and delivers the famous line, They're, They're here. here. In 1987, O'Rourke had become ill while filming Poltergeist 3. She had gone to the doctors and was mistakenly diagnosed with Crohn's disease. The following year, in 1988, she got sick again and was diagnosed with the flu. The very next day, she collapsed and suffered cardiac arrest. She was immediately flown to a San Diego hospital where the surgery to remove a blockage in her bowels was successful. Unfortunately, while she was in the recovery room, she suffered another cardiac arrest and passed away. Officially, her death was a result of congenital stenosis of the intestine complicated by septic shock. What does that mean? So, during my research, congenital stenosis of the intestine, uh, it's when like a blood vessel gets extremely thin, kind of like a blood clot, but it's the actual vessel get, that gets thin. So she had a blockage in her intestine and she didn't have any symptoms of that blockage. So no one knew that something was wrong there. The head of gastroenterology at the UC Irvine Medical Center, Daniel Hollander, noted how unusual Heather's death was. She had lacked prior symptoms to any sort of bowel defect. She was 12 years old. Next, we'll discuss the murder of Dominique Dunn, who played the older sister, Dana. In 1981, Dunn was dating John Thomas Sweeney, a sous chef at Ma Maison in Los Angeles. 
Side note, during my research, I learned that this restaurant is credited with launching the career Wolfgang Puck. Really? The restaurant also closed in 1985. Hmm. Anyway, Dunn and Sweeney had dated only for a few weeks before Sweeney became extremely possessive and jealous. He even started to physically abuse Dunn. During an argument, Sweeney ripped some of Dunn's hair out of her head by the roots. She managed to escape and make it to her mother's house before Sweeney came along, pounding on the door and demanding to be let in. Dominique's mother told him to leave before she called the police. He left, and a few days later, Dunn went back to the apartment they shared and continued the relationship. A month later, Sweeney grabbed her by the throat during an argument, threw her on the floor, and began to strangle her. A friend who happened to be staying with the couple said she heard loud gagging sounds and ran to check on Dominique. Dunn had said that Sweeney tried to kill her. Dunn had said that Sweeney tried to kill her, which he denied and told her to come back to bed. Dunn pretended she was going to, but snuck out with her friend to escape. The two made it to the friend's car and attempted to drive away. Sweeney had heard the car engine start, ran down to the car and jumped on its hood. The girl stopped the car long enough for Sweeney to jump off and immediately drove away. A few weeks later, on October 30th, 1982, Dunn had broken up with Sweeney and went home to her West Hollywood apartment to practice lines for an upcoming TV show with her co-star, David Packer. Sweeney had heard where she was and went to her home. Originally, Dunn was talking to Sweeney through a locked screen door, but had agreed to come out to talk to Sweeney on the porch. David Packer later on said, after Dunn had gone outside, he heard smacking sounds, two screams, and then a thud. He called police immediately and then ran outside to find Sweeney leaning over a lifeless Dunn. He had strangled her. Dominique was rushed to the hospital and placed on life support. Unfortunately, a few days later on November 4th, she had no brain activity and her parents decided it was best to take her off life support. She was 22. She also shares a birthday with your dad. Aww. November 23rd. Now, maybe the most popular reason poltergeists are considered cursed? The skeletons. The real, used-to-be-human skeletons used in the film. Towards the end of the movie, while all the action is going on, the mother, Diane, is dragged by a supernatural force to the family's swimming pool in the backyard. She was pulled into the water and able to escape but not before coming into contact with the skeletons buried underneath the house, causing all the supernatural occurrences. In 2001, in an interview with VH1, Joe Beth Williams, who played Diane, said, I would have to go into this huge tank of what I thought was mud with these skeletons, which, by the way, I thought were plastic, but later found out they were real skeletons. It was a nightmare. Wait, she said what she thought was mud, so what was it? No, she thought they were... She thought. She was in mud, but oh, she thought okay. the skeletons were fake. Okay. Yeah, I what I read was that none of the actors knew they were using real skeletons. Only the prop director knew. Yep. It was a real nightmare, she said. The film's assistant prop manager, Bruce Kazan, explained why the film opted for real skeletons instead of plastic or rubber ones. Bruce says they came from Carolina Biological a medical and science supply company that sold human skeletons mainly for use in medical schools back in the 80s. Replica skeletons did not exist, as far as I remember, at that time. 
They're now common and relatively cheap. And the rush to the bottom line for cost will dictate. Yeah, that's what I heard, that it was cheaper to use real skeletons than plastic ones. Yep. And I'm like, what? Because but I guess if they're not making any plastic ones, it makes sense. Because they had to create the mold of skeletons, and so that took time and money. So they just went to medical schools and used real skeletons. That's something. Now, we all know nothing good comes from disturbing the dead. So the fact that these skeletons were real only adds fuel to the legend of Poltergeist. And that concludes this week's episode of Chills. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Spotify or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at ChillsPodcastNP. You can also send in your personal stories to ChillsPodcastNP at gmail.com. There will also be a part two to this episode because there are definitely a lot of cursed films. We'll see you next week. <laughs>